Hey, everybody. Well, <laughs> welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Tyco Alhambra. Thank you for listening. I am a little depressed right now because this is the second time I've had to record this episode. And it's not because of anything that happened. It's because I am a dumb dummy. I recorded this whole episode and then went on to record some other stuff without even and without even thinking about it, just clicked right out of that window and was like, nah, I don't need to save this. It's good. And it wasn't good. And so I lost that entire episode. So it was a really good episode. It had a lot of really good bloopers and uh, and I lost it. I just lost the whole thing because I'm a dumb dummy. Also, my cat is in here with me. So everyone who's a fan of my cat, this could be a lot of fun for you. All right. And thus it is with apologies that I offer this version of the episode. Uh, and hopefully it turns out fine. The Recluse of Bayswater. Amongst the many friends who were favored with the occasional pleasure of Mr. Dyson's society was Mr. Edgar Russell, realist and obscure struggler who occupied a small back room on the second floor of a house in Abingdon Grove, Notting Hill. Turning off from the main street and walking a few paces onward, one was conscious of a certain calm, a drowsy peace which made the feet inclined to loiter, and this was ever the atmosphere of Abingdon Grove. The houses stood a little back, with gardens where the lilac and laburnum and blood-red may blossomed gaily in their seasons, and there was a corner where an older house in another street had managed to keep a back garden of real extent. A walled-in garden whence there came a pleasant scent of greenness after the rains of early summer, where old elms held memories of the open fields, where there was yet sweet grass to walk on. The houses in Abingdon Grove belonged chiefly to the nondescript stucco period of thirty-five years ago, tolerably built with passable accommodation for moderate incomes. They had largely passed into the state of lodgings, and cards bearing the inscription Furnished Apartments were not infrequent over the doors. Here, then, in a house of sufficiently good appearance, Mr. Russell had established himself, for he looked upon the traditional dirt and squalor of Grub Street as a false and obsolete convention, and preferred, as he said, to live within sight of green leaves. Indeed, from his room one had a magnificent view of a long line of gardens, and a screen of poplars shut out the melancholy back premises of Wilton Street during the summer months. Mr. Russell lived chiefly on bread and tea, for his means were of the smallest, but when Dyson came to see him, he would send out the slavey for six ale, and Dyson was always at liberty to smoke as much of his own tobacco as he pleased. The landlady had been so unfortunate as to have her drawing-room floor vacant for many months. A card had long proclaimed the void within, and Dyson, when he walked up the steps one evening in early autumn, had a sense that something was missing, and looking at the fanlight, saw the appealing card had disappeared. "'You have let your first floor, have you?' he said as he greeted Mr. Russell. "'Yes. It was taken about a fortnight ago by a lady.' "'Indeed,' said Dyson, always curious. "'A young lady?' "'Yes, I believe so. She is a widow and wears a thick crepe veil.' I have met her once or twice on the stairs and in the street, but I should not know her face. Well, said Dyson when the beer had arrived and the pipes were in full blast, and what have you been doing? Do you find the work getting any easier? Alas, said the young man with an expression of great gloom, 
The life is a purgatory in all but a hell. I write, picking out my words, weighing and balancing the force of every syllable, calculating the minutest effects that language can produce, erasing and rewriting and spending a whole evening over a page of manuscript. And then, in the morning, when I read what I have written, well, there is nothing to be done but to throw it in the waste paper basket if the verso has been already written on, or to put it in the drawer if the other side happens to be clean. When I have written a phrase which undoubtedly embodies a happy turn of thought, I find it dressed up in feeble commonplace, and when the style is good, it serves only to conceal the baldness of superannuated fancies. I sweat over my work, Dyson. Every finished line means so much agony. I envy the lot of the carpenter in the side street who has a craft which he understands. When he gets an order for a table, he does not writhe with anguish. But if I were so unlucky as to get an order for a book, I think I should go mad. My dear fellow, you take it all too seriously. You should let the ink flow more readily. Above all, firmly believe, when you sit down to write, that you are an artist, and that whatever you are about is a masterpiece. Suppose ideas fail, you say. As I heard one of our most exquisite artists say, it's of no consequence. The ideas are all there at the bottom of that box of cigarettes. You indeed smoke tobacco, but the application is the same. Besides, you must have some happy moments, and these should be ample consolation. Perhaps you are right, but such moments are so few, and then there is the torture of a glorious conception matched with execution beneath the standard of the family story paper. For instance, I was happy for two hours a night or two ago. I lay awake and saw visions, but then the morning. What was your idea? It seemed to me a splendid one. I thought of Balzac and the Comédie Humaine, of Zola and the Rougnon Macquart family. It dawned upon me that I would write the history of a street. Every house should form a volume. I fixed upon the street. I saw each house and read as clearly as in letters the physiology and psychology of each. The little byway stretched before me in its actual shape. A street that I know and have passed down a hundred times with some twenty houses, prosperous and mean, and lilac bushes in purple blossom. And yet it was at the same time a symbol, a via dolorosa of hopes cherished and disappointed, of years of monotonous existence without content or discontent, of tragedies and obscure sorrows, and on the door of one of those houses I saw the red stain of blood, and behind a window two shadows blackened and faded on the blind as they swayed on tightened cords, the shadows of a man and a woman hanging in a vulgar gaslit parlour. These were my fancies, but when pen touched paper they shriveled and vanished away. "'Yes,' said Dyson, "'there is a lot in that. "'I envy you the pains of transmuting vision into reality, 
And still more, I envy you the day when you will look at your bookshelf and see twenty goodly books upon the shelves, the series complete and done forever. Let me entreat you to have them bound in solid parchment with gold lettering. It is the only real cover for a valiant book. When I look in at the windows of some choice shop and see the bindings of Levant Morocco with pretty tools and panellings, and your sweet contrasts of red and green, I say to myself, these are not books, but bibelot. A book bound so, a true book, mind you, is like a Gothic statue draped in brocade of Lyon. Alas, said Russell, we need not discuss the binding. The books are not begun. The talk went on as usual till eleven o'clock, when Dyson bade his friend good night. He knew the way downstairs and walked down by himself, but greatly to his surprise as he crossed the first floor landing, the door opened slightly and a hand was stretched out, beckoning. Dyson was not the man to hesitate under such circumstances. In a moment, he saw himself involved in adventure, and as he told himself, the Dysons had never disobeyed a lady's summons. Softly then, with due regard for the lady's honor, he would have entered the room when a low but clear voice spoke to him. "'Go downstairs and open the door and shut it again rather loudly. Then come up to me, and for heaven's sake, walk softly.' Dyson obeyed her commands, not without some hesitation, for he was afraid of meeting the landlady or the maid on his return journey. But walking like a cat, and making each step he trod on crack loudly, he flattered himself that he had escaped observation, and as he gained the top of the stairs, the door opened wide before him, and he found himself in the lady's drawing-room, bowing awkwardly. "'Pray, be seated, sir. Perhaps this chair will be the best. It was the favoured chair of my landlady's deceased husband. I would ask you to smoke, but the odour would betray me. I know my proceedings must seem to you unconventional, but I saw you arrive this evening, and I do not think you would refuse to help a woman who is so unfortunate as I am. Mr. Dyson looked shyly at the young lady before him. She was dressed in deep mourning, but the piquant smiling face and charming hazel eyes ill accorded with the heavy garments and the moldering surface of the crepe. Madame, he said gallantly, your instinct has served you well. We will not trouble, if you please, about the question of social conventions. The chivalrous gentleman knows nothing of such matters. I hope I may be privileged to serve you. You are very kind to me, but I knew it would be so. Alas, sir, I have had experience of life, and I am rarely mistaken. Yet man is too often so vile and so misjudging that I trembled even as I resolved to take this step, which, for all I knew, might prove to be both desperate and ruinous. With me you have nothing to fear, said Dyson. I was nurtured in the faith of chivalry, and I have always endeavoured to remember the proud traditions of my race. Confide in me, then, and count upon my secrecy, and if it prove possible, you may rely on my help. Sir, I will not waste your time, which I am sure is valuable by ardle parleyings. Learn, then, that I am a fugitive, and in hiding here. I place myself in your power. You have but to describe my features— and I fall into the hands of my relentless enemy. Mr. Dyson wondered for a passing instant how this could be, but he only renewed his promise of silence, repeating that he would be the embodied spirit of dark concealment. Good, said the lady, the oriental fervor of your style is delightful. 
In the first place, I must disabuse your mind of the conviction that I am a widow. These gloomy vestments have been forced on me by strange circumstance. In plain language, I have deemed it expedient to go disguised. You have a friend, I think, in the house, Mr. Russell. He seems of a coy and retiring nature. Excuse me, madame, said Dyson. He is not coy, but he is a realist, and perhaps you are aware that no Carthusian monk can emulate the cloistral seclusion in which a realistic novelist loves to shroud himself. It is his way of observing human nature. Well, well, said the lady, all this, though deeply interesting, is not germane to our affair. I must tell you my history. With these words, the young lady proceeded to relate the novel of the white powder. My name is Lester. My father, Major General Wynn Lester, a distinguished officer of artillery, succumbed five years ago to a complicated liver complaint acquired in the deadly climate of India. A year later, my only brother Francis came home after an exceptionally brilliant career at the university and settled down with the resolution of a hermit to master what had been well called the great legend of the law. He was a man who seemed to live in utter indifference to everything that is called pleasure, and though he was handsomer than most men, and could talk as merrily and wittily as if he were a mere vagabond, he avoided society and shut himself up in a large room at the top of the house to make himself a lawyer. Ten hours a day of hard reading was at first his allotted portion. From the first light in the east to the late afternoon, he remained shut up with his books, taking a hasty half-hour's lunch with me, as if he grudged the wasting of the moments, and going out for a short walk when it began to grow dusk. I thought that such relentless application must be injurious, and tried to conjole him from the crabbed textbooks, but his ardor seemed to grow rather than diminish, and his daily tale of hours increased. I spoke to him seriously, suggesting some occasional relaxation, if it were but an idle afternoon with a harmless novel. But he laughed and said that he read about feudal tenures when he felt in need of amusement, and scoffed at the notion of theaters or a month's fresh air. I confessed that he looked well and seemed not to suffer from his labors, but I knew that such unnatural toil would take revenge at last, and I was not mistaken. A look of anxiety began to lurk about his eyes, and he seemed languid, and at last he avowed that he was no longer in perfect health. He was troubled, he said, with a sensation of dizziness, and awoke now and then of nights from fearful dreams, terrified and cold with icy sweats. "'I am taking care of myself,' he said, "'so you must not trouble. I passed the whole of yesterday afternoon in idleness, leaning back in that comfortable chair you gave me, and scribbling nonsense on a sheet of paper. No, no, I will not overdo my work. I shall be well enough in a week or two, depend upon it.' Yet in spite of his assurances, I could see that he grew no better, but rather worse. He would enter the drawing-room with a face all miserably wrinkled and despondent, and endeavored to look gaily when my eyes fell on him, and I thought such symptoms of evil omen, and was frightened sometimes at the nervous irritation of his movements and at glances which I could not decipher. Much against his will I prevailed on him to have medical advice, and with an ill grace he called in our old doctor. Dr. Haberden cheered me after his examination of the patient. "'There's nothing really much amiss,' he said to me. "'No doubt he reads too hard and eats hastily "'and then goes back again to his books in too great a hurry, "'and the natural consequence is some digestive trouble "'and a little mischief in the nervous system. "'But I think I do indeed, Miss Lester, 
that we shall be able to set this all right. I have written him a prescription which ought to do great things, so you have no cause for anxiety. My brother insisted on having the prescription made up by a chemist in the neighborhood. It was an odd, old-fashioned shop, devoid of the studied coquetry and calculated glitter that makes so gay a show on the counters and shelves of the modern apothecary. But Francis liked the old chemist and believed in the scrupulous purity of his drugs. The medicine was sent in due course, and I saw that my brother took it regularly after lunch and dinner. It was an innocent-looking white powder, of which a little was dissolved in a glass of cold water. I stirred it in, and it seemed to disappear, leaving the water clear and colorless. At first, Francis seemed to benefit greatly. The weariness vanished from his face, and he became more cheerful than he had ever been since the time when he left school. He talked gaily of reforming himself, and avowed to me that he had wasted his time. "'I have given too many hours to law,' he said, laughing. "'I think you have saved me in the nick of time. "'Come, I shall be Lord Chancellor yet, but I must not forget life. "'You and I will have a holiday together before long. "'We will go to Paris and enjoy ourselves and keep away from the Bibliothèque Nationale.' "'I confessed myself delighted with the prospect. "'When shall we go?' I said. "'I can start the day after tomorrow, if you like.' Oh, that is perhaps a little too soon. After all, I do not know London yet, and I suppose a man ought to give the pleasures of his own country the first choice. But we will go off together in a week or two, so try and furbish up your French. I only know law French myself, and I'm afraid that wouldn't do. We were just finishing dinner, and he quaffed off his medicine with a parade of carousal as if it had been wine from some choicest bin. Has it any particular taste? I said. No, I should not know I was not drinking water and he got up from his chair and began to pace up and down the room as if he were undecided as to what he should do next. "'Shall we have coffee in the drawing-room?' I said. "'Or would you like to smoke?' "'No. I think I will take a turn. It seems a pleasant evening. Look at the afterglow. Why, it is as if a great city were burning in flames, and down there, between the dark houses, it is raining blood fast, fast. "'Yes, I will go out.' I may be in soon, but I shall take my keys, so good night, dear, if I don't see you again. The door slammed behind him, and I saw him walk down the street, swinging his Malacca cane, and I felt grateful to Dr. Haberden for such an improvement. I believe my brother came home very late that night, but he was in a merry mood the next morning. I walked on without thinking where I was going, he said, enjoying the freshness of the air and livened by the crowds as I reached more frequented quarters, and then I met an old college friend, Orford, in the press of the pavement, and then, well, we enjoyed ourselves. I have felt what it is to be young and a man. I find I have blood in my veins, as other men have. I made an appointment with Orford for tonight. There will be a little party of us at the restaurant. Yes, I shall enjoy myself for a week or two, and hear the chimes at midnight, and then we will go for our little trip together. Such was the transmutation of my brother's character, that in a few days he became a lover of pleasure, a careless and merry idler of western pavements, a hunter out of snug restaurants, and a fine critic of fantastic dancing. He grew fat before my eyes, and said no more of Paris, for he had clearly found his paradise in London. I rejoiced and yet wondered a little, for there was, I thought, something in his gaiety that indefinitely displeased me, though I could not have defined my feeling but by degrees there came a change. He returned still in the cold hours of the morning, but I heard no more about his pleasures, 
and one morning as we sat at breakfast together, I looked suddenly into his eyes and saw a stranger before me. "'Oh, Francis!' I cried. "'Oh, Francis! Francis, what have you done?' And rending sobs cut the word short, and I went weeping out of the room. For though I knew nothing, yet I knew all, and by some odd play of thought, I remembered the evening when he first went abroad to prove his manhood, and the picture of the sunset sky glowed before me, the clouds like a city in burning flames, and the rain of blood. Yet I did battle with such thoughts, resolving that perhaps, after all, no great harm had been done, and in the evening at dinner, I resolved to press him to fix a day for our holiday in Paris. We had talked easily enough, and my brother had just taken his medicine, which he had continued all the while. I was about to begin my topic, when the words forming in my mind vanished, and I wondered for a second what icy and intolerable weight oppressed my heart, and suffocated me as with the unutterable horror of the coffin lid nailed down on the living. We had dined without candles, and the room had slowly grown from twilight to gloom, and the walls and corners were indistinct in the shadow. But from where I sat, I looked out into the street, and as I thought of what I would say to Francis, the sky began to flush and shine as it had done on a well-remembered evening, and in the gap between two dark masses that were houses, an awful pageantry of flame appeared. Lurid whirls of writhed cloud and utter depths burning, and gray masses like the fume blown from a smoking city, and an evil glory blazing far above shot with tongues of more ardent fire, and below as if there were a deep pool of blood. I looked down to where my brother sat facing me, and the words were shaped on my lips when I saw his hand resting on the table. Between the thumb and forefinger of the closed hand there was a mark, a small patch about the size of a sixpence, and somewhat of the color of a bad bruise. Yet by some sense I cannot define, I knew that what I saw was no bruise at all. Oh, if human flesh could burn with flame, and if flame could be as black as pitch, such was that before me. Without thought or fashioning of words, gray horror shaped within me at the sight, and in an inner cell it was known to be a brand. For a moment the stained sky became dark as midnight, and when light returned to me, I was alone in the silent room, and soon after I heard my brother go out. Late as it was, I put on my bonnet and went to Dr. Haberden, and in his great consulting room, ill-lighted by a candle which the doctor brought in with him, with stammering lips and a voice that would break in spite of my resolve, I told him all, from the day on which my brother began to take the medicine down to the dreadful thing I had seen scarcely half an hour before. When I had done, the doctor looked at me for a minute with an expression of great pity on his face. "'My dear Miss Lester,' he said, "'you have evidently been anxious about your brother. You have been worrying over him, I am sure. Come now, is it not so?' "'I have certainly been anxious,' I said. "'For the last week or two I have not felt at ease.' "'Quite so.' You know, of course, what a queer thing the brain is. I understand what you mean, but I was not deceived. I saw what I have told you with my own eyes. Yes, yes, of course. But your eyes had been staring at that very curious sunset we had tonight. That is the only explanation. You will see it in the proper light tomorrow, I am sure. But remember, I am always ready to give any help that is in my power. Do not scruple to come to me or to send for me if you are in any distress. I went away, but little comforted, 
all confusion and terror and sorrow, not knowing where to turn. When my brother and I met the next day, I looked quickly at him and noticed with a sinking at heart that the right hand, the hand on which I had clearly seen the patch as of a black fire, was wrapped up with a handkerchief. "'What is the matter with your hand, Francis?' I said in a steady voice. "'Nothing of consequence. I cut a finger last night and it bled rather awkwardly, so I did it up roughly, to the best of my ability.' "'I will do it neatly for you, if you like.' "'No, thank you, dear. This will answer very well. Suppose we have breakfast. I am quite hungry.' We sat down, and I watched him. He scarcely ate or drank at all, but tossed his meat to the dog when he thought my eyes were turned away, and there was a look in his eyes that I had never yet seen, and the thought fled across my mind that it was a look that was scarcely human. I was firmly convinced that, awful and incredible as was the thing I had seen the night before, yet it was no illusion, no glamour of bewildered sense, and in the course of the morning I went again to the doctor's house. He shook his head with an air puzzled and incredulous, and seemed to reflect for a few minutes. "'And you say he still keeps up the medicine? "'As I understand, all the symptoms he complained of have disappeared long ago, "'and why should he go on taking the stuff when he's quite well? "'And by the by, where did he get it made up? "'At Sace's? I never send anyone there. "'The old man is getting careless. "'Suppose you come with me to the chemist's. "'I should like to have a talk with him.' "'We walked together to the shop. "'Old Sace knew Dr. Haberden "'and was quite ready to give any information.' "'You have been sending that in to Mr. Lester for some weeks, I think, on my prescription,' said the doctor, giving the old man a penciled scrap of paper. The chemist put on his great spectacles with trembling uncertainty and held up the paper with a shaking hand. "'Oh, yes,' he said. "'I have very little of it left. It is rather an uncommon drug, and I have had it in stock some time. I must uh, get in some more if Mr. Lester goes on with it.' "'Kindly let me have a look at the stuff,' said Haberden, and the chemist gave him a glass bottle. He took out the stopper and smelt the contents and looked strangely at the old man. "'Where did you get this?' he said. "'And what is it? For one thing, Mr. Sace, it is not what I prescribed. Yes, yes, I see the label is right enough, but I tell you this is not the drug.' "'I have had it a, a long time,' said the old man in feeble terror. "'I got it from Burbage's in the usual way. "'It is not prescribed often, and I have had it on the shelf for some years. "'You see, there, there is very little left.' "'You had better give it to me,' said Haberden. "'I am afraid something wrong has happened.' "'We went out of the shop in silence, "'the doctor carrying the bottle neatly wrapped in paper under his arm. "'Dr. Haberden,' I said when we had walked a little way. "'Dr. Haberden.' "'Yes,' he said, looking at me gloomily enough. I should like you to tell me what my brother has been taking twice a day for the last month or so. Frankly, Miss Lester, I don't know. We will speak of this when we get to my house. We walked on quickly without another word till we reached Dr. Haberden's. He asked me to sit down and began pacing up and down the room, his face clouded over as I could see with no common fears. Well, he said at length, this is all very strange. It is only natural that you should feel alarmed— and I must confess that my mind is far from easy. We will put aside, if you please, what you told me last night and this morning, but the fact remains that for the last few weeks Mr. Lester has been impregnating his system with a drug which is completely unknown to me. I tell you, it is not what I ordered. 
and what that stuff in the bottle really is remains to be seen. He undid the wrapper and cautiously tilted a few grains of the white powder onto a piece of paper and peered curiously at it. Yes, he said, it is like the sulfate of quinine, as you say. It is flaky, but smell it. He held the bottle to me, and I bent over it. It was a strange, sickly smell, vaporous and overpowering, like some strong anesthetic. "'I shall have it analyzed,' said Haberden. "'I have a friend who has devoted his whole life to chemistry as a science. Then we shall have something to go upon. No, no, say no more about that other matter. I cannot listen to that. And take my advice, and think no more about it yourself.' That evening— my brother did not go out as usual after dinner. "'I have had my fling,' he said with a queer laugh, "'and I must go back to my old ways. A little law will be quite a relaxation after so sharp a dose of pleasure.' And he grinned to himself, and soon after went up to his room. His hand was still all bandaged. Dr. Haberden called a few days later. "'I have no special news to give you,' he said. "'Chambers is out of town, so I know no more about that stuff than you do. "'But I should like to see Mr. Lester, if he is in.' "'He is in his room,' I said. "'I will tell him you are here.' "'No, no, I will go up to him. "'We will have a little quiet talk together. "'I dare say that we have made a good deal of fuss about very little. "'For, after all, whatever the white powder may be, it seems to have done him good.' "'The doctor went upstairs, and standing in the hall I heard his knock, "'and the opening and shutting of the door.' And then I waited in the silent house for an hour, and the stillness grew more and more intense as the hands of the clock crept round. Then there sounded from above the noise of a door shut sharply, and the doctor was coming down the stairs. His footsteps crossed the hall, and there was a pause at the door. I drew a long, sick breath with difficulty, and saw my face, white in a little mirror, and he came in and stood at the door. There was an unutterable horror shining in his eyes. He steadied himself by holding the back of a chair with one hand, and his lower lip trembled like a horse's, and he gulped and stammered unintelligible sounds before he spoke. "'I have seen that man,' he began in a dry whisper. "'I have been sitting in his presence for the last hour. "'My God, and I am alive and in my senses. "'I, who have dealt with death all my life and have dabbled with the melting ruins of the earthly tabernacle.' but not this. Oh, not this. And he covered his face with his hands as if to shut out the sight of something before him. Do not send for me again, Miss Lester, he said with more composure. I can do nothing in this house. Goodbye. As I watched him totter down the steps and along the pavement towards his house, it seemed to me that he had aged by ten years since the morning. And that will end this portion of The Three Imposters by Arthur Mackin. We will conclude the novel of the White Powder next week. Um, thank you all so much for your support. Uh, everyone who supports me on Patreon, uh, you're really, really great. And um, uh, I just want to say a special thank you to David Kellogg, to Pontus Fredrickson, to Andrew Buchanan. Thank you so much. Uh, Damon Bowles. Thank you. John A. Meadows. Thank you so much. And Marco Van Putin, thank you so much to you all for your support. 
Every dollar that I make goes back into the show, whether it's buying equipment or paying the Pride Month readers or paying the hosting fees. Um, it all goes uh, it all goes back into the show. Um, and I'm very grateful for all of the support. It really means a lot to me. Um, if you want to support me on Patreon, you can check me out at patreon.com slash the Weird Tales podcast. Uh, you can also check out the Reignition Theory, um, the uh, fictional historical account of the fall of one of the world's great cities. Um, and there's zombies in it, too. I play a major role in it, and it was one of the, it was the first voice acting thing I was ever cast in. So uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, I think that's going to wrap it up for this week. I can't think of anything else I need to say, so uh, please make sure that uh, you stay indoors as much as possible. If you go out, wear a mask, wear two masks if you really want to be extra sure because there's all those variants that are out there now and some of them are more contagious and wearing two masks is the recommended thing by the CDC. So wear two masks if you go out. Make sure they both cover your nose and they both go under your chin because if you don't do that, you're not doing any good. Um... If you have the chance to get vaccinated, get vaccinated, because the more people we get vaccinated, the quicker it'll drop off and the quicker we'll, you know, be out of the dark woods and into the lighter, you know, happier woods. So thank you all so much. Uh, I hope you all have a great week and I will see you next time. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. So I lost that entire episode. So. Are you okay? I just got an, a, a phone call that said it was from a Birmingham, Alabama piggling wiggly. And <laughs> then started saying, Dear citizen, because of suspicious activity related to your social security number, it has been suspended. And I'm like, for one thing, how are you identified as Piggly Wiggly? For another thing, like, what the fuck is even going on? <laughs> okay, in or out, make up your mind. You're staying in? Alright, okay, I love you. Alright. And this was ever the atmosphere of Alma. And a screen of poplars shut out the melancholy back premises of Wilton Street during the summer months. Poplars. Pop a poplar in your mouth when you come to Fishy Joe's. What they're made of is a mystery. Where they come from, no one knows. You can pick them, you can lick them, you can stick them, you can flick them. If you promise not to sue us, you can stick them up your nose. I think I heard my wife laughing right there. But the door is closed, so I'm not sure. Well, said Dyson when the beer had arrived and the pipes. We're not going to do this. Don't be meowing, all right? You wanted to be in here, so you got to be quiet. I lay awake and saw visions. All right, he's gone. Sorry, everybody who likes my cat. He left of his own accord, by the way. I didn't kick him out.